Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Hey, friends, thank you guys so much for tuning in here, and I'm so glad to be continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Ephesians called In Him, Experiencing the Love of God in the Work of Christ. And Derek has been doing an amazing job introducing this sermon series to us. He's been doing an amazing job with leading us through the first chapter, and I'm so glad to be moving us into the second chapter of Ephesians. This is actually one of my favorite passages ever, like in all of the Bible, and I'm so grateful that Derek so graciously allowed me to enter back into our preaching schedule with this specific passage. So um, Derek and I are actually in my living room right now. As you can see, this is my living room as we've been here for years doing this online thing. Uh, thank you, COVID. Thanks, COVID, for being allowing us to do all this. But we actually are really grateful that, that these sermons can go out into uh, your living room or wherever you're watching this from. We never really had an inclination to do this before, but now because of COVID, we're doing this. But we're recording, that means that we're recording this early. So this video is, is premiering, these, this audio is premiering either on Spotify or on social media uh, on a Sunday, but we're recording this on a Thursday. So tomorrow, Rachel and I are going to be driving to Chattanooga to do a wedding for some dear friends of ours, Whitney and Mason. They're just really dear and near and dear to us. When they started dating, they came and traveled to our house and stayed in our guest rooms. Um, and throughout the course of their relationship, we have just had this really special, beautiful relationship, specifically with Whitney and now with Mason, for a number of years. And they've given me the privilege and the honor to officiate their wedding. But, you know, as we've been walking with our friends, and, and if you've been married, if you are married, if you've ever planned a wedding or been involved with a wedding, you know what happens is there's a lot of stress around it sometimes, right? Like there's, there's this odd mixture leading up to a wedding. And you know, a lot of times weddings and funerals um, don't really create conflict, you know? They just kind of more reveal the things that are already there, right? So uh, a lot of times as, you're, as we plan a wedding, there's anticipation, but there's also like heartache and stress and family conflict that can come in there. There's like struggle, right? Even between the bride and groom or maybe between family members about um, every, it can be as minuscule as, as what color the flowers are going to be or as important as where the venue is going to be, right? But, but there's always a drive through the conflict because there's hope right? There's a hope that everybody is driving to. Everybody's looking forward to that ceremony, to that day, and then the marriage beyond it. Like there's a, there's a movement, there's a drive, there's like a vision that's moving closer and closer towards this day. And we've seen that with our friends, Whitney and Mason. But we also see that people are forming their lives around the event of that wedding. Right, So for instance, for me, I had to coordinate in my schedule to drive to Nashville to go get a suit. I needed a suit that fit me, right? Because I've lost some weight and you know, the other suit I had looked like I was wearing my dad's suit and I was 10 years old, right? So I needed to go get a suit that fit me. Um, uh, my wife bought a dress a couple months ago. We're planning on driving out to Chattanooga. We formed our 
life for this weekend around being present with Whitney and Mason for this beautiful ceremony. We formed our lives around this event. So with that kind of in our mind, in the same way, I want to encourage us to look to Jesus's work for us, specifically on the cross, like this upcoming wedding. Like, I want us to think about how can we form our lives around the hope that this event both happened and will ultimately be effective towards us in the conclusion of human history when the the world will be set right again because of this event, right? I want us to form our lives around this event because like Mason and Whitney are going to be different after this weekend, I want this event of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection on our behalf to change the core of who we are. And so today, I want to talk about this idea of hope and this idea of being made alive into a new hope. I want to talk about a rarity today, and this this idea of hope. And, you know, it's so often we look in the news and we see what's going on in the world around us, and it's, sometimes it's hard to feel hope, isn't it? It's hard to experience hope. But I want us to think and ponder that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, actually gives us a deep abiding hope because we have been made alive in him. So we're going to talk about some bad news first, and then we're going to talk about some really good news. So I kind of want to prep you. The first two points are talking about some bad news, but the last two points are going to be talking about some really good news. So we're in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 10. This is what that says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is rather the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Now, we're going to talk about a couple points today. The first one is creation, that we were created with infinite hope. And and I said that we're going to talk about hope, but the very first thing we began with reading the text is, and you were dead. We're talking about deadness. How in the world does that work together? This doesn't seem like hope to me as we start our sermon today. You see, what we find is we actually have to go back to the beginning of the Bible to see the beginning of hope. It's actually found in the first page of the Bible. We see how hope is infused in the world. Look with me at Genesis 2, starting in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water 
the garden. Now, my friends, I want to give us a picture of how we were created with infinite hope. You see, at the beginning of time, when God created the universe, the world, and all these things, um, there was no brokenness, there was no struggle, there was no pain. There was infinite joy, infinite hope, infinite opportunity for the future. And I find it so interesting as we open up the first few pages of the Bible that God spoke the universe into existence. He spoke light and it says he spoke the seas to part and create dry, dry land coming out of them. But it says that God planted a garden in Eden. It doesn't say he spoke it. So that means that I, I just get this imagination in my brain. If you'll let me just give me a little bit of pastoral creative license here. I think that I just get this picture of God getting on his knees in a garden with fresh tilled earth underneath his hands and sticking his hands in the dirt and molding it and planting seeds and carefully watering them. He could have just snapped his fingers, but instead he intentionally planted a garden. He watered it with fresh streams. I saw, I thought that was so beautiful, a river running out of Eden to water the garden. I just get this picture of like the cleanest clearest, coldest spring water that you can ever begin to imagine flowing through the Garden of Eden and flowing from that are trees and branches and brushes and flowers and and grass just growing as a result of this beautiful, fresh, crystal clear, clean water that's flowing through the garden. And, and what we're describing here is this idea. I'm actually going to talk about it in my, my wedding homily this weekend for Whitney and Mason. We're talking about this idea of shalom. And shalom means peace in Hebrew, but it's very different than, it's, than how you and I use it. When we use peace, it's typically the absence of conflict. But how the Bible uses this idea of peace is like, like an active peace, like a peace on the move. It's not passive, rather it's active, it's flourishing, it's thriving, it's interconnectivity between all people and all things. It's universal flourishing and thriving. And we had shalom in four ways. Uh, in, in Genesis 2, we see we had shalom with God. Adam and Eve were walking with God. They were spending time with him. There was, there, was, there was complete peace between us and God. We see also that we had peace within ourselves, right? It says at the end of chapter two of Genesis, they were naked and not ashamed. Can you imagine a world without shame? Can you imagine living your life never being ashamed? Third, we had peace with each other, right? So Adam, when he sees Eve for the first time, he sings her a song at the end of Genesis 2. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man, right? He's, he's saying we are one, we are connected, we are unified. And finally, we have peace with the earth as well. Uh, the, the, the things that they tended, the garden, they were going to grow. It's going to all work together. Everything worked together. It just worked that's how we were created in the garden with infinite hope. Now, I wish that was the end of the story, but if it was, we wouldn't need this sermon, right? We'd be face to face with God right now. But here's the deal. Unfortunately, we see coming to the second point that the fall, in the fall, hope was utterly lost for everyone. So I'm going to read a couple of verses from Genesis 2 and then a verse from Genesis 3 to synthesize the story. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now, my friends, what we see here is that Adam was passive. That God spoke to Adam directly, saying, eat of every other tree but this one. But Adam was with Eve the whole time that she was being tempted by the evil serpent, and he was silent. He did not protect his wife from the evils of temptation. And because of his passivity, because of his silence, humanity fell. And this is where we get to Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember, in Genesis 2, it's, God's instructions were, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what God meant was that we would die, our souls, our connection with God, our connection with, with one another, shalom, would die that day. Our connection with God shattered and broken. Death came into the world. And that's where we get from Genesis 3 with the fall to Ephesians 2. And that's where we come to it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, for some of you, you may know, my wife, Rachel, has been a nurse for about a decade, right? And, and she recently has become a nurse practitioner. But my wife dealt with very high acuity or very sick patients um, that were dealing with kidney, liver, or pancreas transplants, right? That was her specialty. And for most of her career as a nurse, she did that, which meant that, they were, meant that a lot of her patients were very sick, and some of them even died while they were under her care. And so when that would happen, you'd have heart monitors and all this stuff. And when, when a patient's heart stopped, a flurry of activity begins to happen. Rachel would rush into the room. She'd call a code. And all of a sudden, you start the chest compressions. You're trying to get the heart to keep pumping. You're trying to get the muscle to start reactivating again. And then all of a sudden, this, it's, it's actually really fascinating and somewhat beautiful, even in light of the tragedy of someone's heart stopping, is that like five or six nurses would rush into the room, right? So the family would be ushered out. Specialists would come into the room. And these are very highly trained people doing a choreographed of different things to try to reanimate this person, to get them alive again, right? So someone's on the bed doing chest compressions. There's another whole nurse that's devoted to just making sure to pump oxygen in the appropriate way down into the person's lungs. There's another person that's there managing all the medicines to reactivate and start the heart, the adrenaline and all those things. There's another person that's quarterbacking the whole thing. There's even a nurse that's walking in the room and her whole job is to take notes for legal and medical reasons, to know what medicine goes in, to know what medicine is coming out, to know what they're doing. So there's an accurate record of all of those things. And, and because of this incredible choreograph, sometimes you get tired doing those chest compressions. So they have a backup nurse to rotate in. They rotate around different responsibilities. It's fascinating the amount of training that these people go through to reanimate this person and to reactivate their heart. Now, guess what? There's only one person in the room doing nothing. Who is it? It's the dead person, right? It's the person who's literally dead. 
they can do nothing to reactivate themselves. They can do nothing to reanimate themselves. They are dead, spiritually dead. And when you read this, they're they're physically dead. And when we read Ephesians 2, verse 1, we are spiritually dead. Now, there's no special Greek term that I can pull out to give us some more nuanced understanding. Dead means dead. Like, it just means dead. Like, you're, you're spiritually dead in your sins. And what we see is because of the fall, we're born into the spiritual deadness. This is the natural state of every little girl and boy that has ever been born. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't still do good actions, but what this means is that our hearts are far from God, spiritually dead. And we walk in this reality with sinful actions that come from a sinful heart. We all do. I do too. You see, dead hearts lead to dead actions. Let me say that again. Dead hearts lead to dead actions. Spiritual deadness leads to actions that exemplify our dead heart. And that's why we get here, the beginning, it says we live in a nature, we live in a spiritual nature, the passions of our flesh. This means that our natural inclination is towards our basest actions. This means that we have an inclination to be tempted. And then it also says, we then carry out these inclinations in our body and our mind. So by our actions and by our thoughts, we carry out this natural inclination to be spiritually dead. Dead hearts lead to dead actions. Now, I want to pause here and ask a question. Is this cruel for us to say this? This seems like a real bummer. But I want us to maybe take a different paradigm here as it relates to understanding spiritual deadness and why this is in the Bible. See, this can be profoundly comforting when we see the attitude of God towards us here in a moment. We're going to get to the good part here in just a second, but this can be profoundly comforting for us because this gives us a paradigm to look at the world through. When bad things happen, it's because our natural state is turned towards the flesh. It's spiritual deadness. You see, it's actually helping us understand why the world is broken, because our hearts are broken from birth. So when we engage in suffering or sinning or both of those things combined, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. But here's the deal. We also see that God in this text right here, before we even move on, we see that God understands us when we are pulled towards actions that hurt ourselves and others. God is intimately aware of what's going on in our heart. He's not distant or absent from your brokenness. He's not distant or absent from your spiritual deadness. He's intimately aware of what's going on and he's involved with it. He knows every nuanced detail of every motivation of your heart and he is not repulsed by it. He knows it better than you do and he's actually drawn to you even more because of this brokenness that's present within us, this deadness. He is not repulsed by our deadness. He's drawn to it. And so we look around the world. We turn on whatever news channel that you like to watch. You turn it on, you see brokenness. And we go to the mirror and we see brokenness. But my friends, this is not the end of the story. That's so good news. It's such good news. You see, because of the fall, hope was utterly lost for everyone. However, there is redemption. Hope is available to anyone. The very next words that come in the text are these in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. I'm going to say this phrase a few times. God's character is mercy. His motive is love and his action is to make us alive again. God's character is mercy, his motive is love, and his action is to make us alive again. God sees us. He knows us completely. This means that he understands all of our jacked up motives. He sees all of our brokenness. He knows all of our secrets. He feels all of our pain. He knows all of our sufferings and struggles, and he does not ignore us. He is not indifferent. God does not ignore you. He loves you. He is drawn to your brokenness. He is drawn to meet the need that our sin has created. His character is mercy. His motive is love. And his action is to make us alive again. First, let's look at God's character is mercy. You see, we're in the darkness. We're dead at the bottom of the ocean. And God did the unspeakable. He dives into it with us. But God... The perfect God steps out of eternity into human history, in the person of Jesus for you and for me. And this makes Christianity unique amongst every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, these are the steps to solve the brokenness. These are that you can transcend above it. You can go through it. You can try to work really hard. You can um, do pilgrimage. You, You can do hajjahs. You can do tithing. You can do work. You can meditate and transcend all these other things. God does not demand anything from us. He becomes us. He becomes fully human. He suffers with us. He completely identifies with us in every way. He is our substitute taking the punishment that our brokenness deserves. And then he tells us, you can't do it. You can't fix yourselves. You can't work hard enough. I will lovingly and graciously do it for you and offer it to you as a gift. You can't make yourself alive. You're dead on the table. And God is like the Godhead. God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are like those nurses entering into that room, activating, working in sync, working in concert to bring us back to life again. Why does he do that? His character is mercy. Why? Because his motive for you is love. This is a rescue mission for you. This is to bring you into a hope that can bring redemption to your brokenness, redeeming hope. That's why we named the church what we named it, because it's a hope that redeems. It's a hope that buys back. It's a hope that pulls you out of darkness into light. It's a hope that pulls you from deadness into life again, to make you alive again. Look at the attitude of the father, God, the father, look at the attitude of your father for you because of the great love with which he loved us. And so often many of us have had broken experiences with our fathers. And if you had a broken experience with your father, let me tell you, you can still see God as a good father to you. Here's why. Because our father's good father is a faint reflection of the true love of the ultimate father. But a bad father can also help you see God. Because a bad father can be the photo negative. You know what a photo negative is? It inverts the colors, right? A bad father can be the photo negative of your true father. So whether you have a good father or you have a bad father, you can see who God truly is in light of those experiences. And it can be so hard to believe this, my friends. I know it is. It can be. Life, other people, brokenness, broken marriages, broken relationships with others, it creeps in 
to convince you that maybe God doesn't really love you. But here's the deal. God has a greater demonstration of his love. When we were far from him, the ultimate demonstration of his love for you is not in your immediate circumstances. It's not even in how other Christians have treated you. The ultimate experience, the ultimate demonstration of God's love is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's that he became a human. It's that he walked into this world, into the brokenness of this world. He became like you and me so that he could save us. And he was perfect in the midst of it. The greatest demonstration of God's love is not that our circumstances change, is that even when we were dead, he came into our deadness and he made us alive. And in the darkness of suffering, Jesus' work on our behalf becomes the reminder that we need of God's love. It's Jesus is the demonstration of God's love because he wants you. He wants you back. He enjoys spending time with you. He is a good father that wants to invite you into the house. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to share who he is with you. Why? Look with me at the next verse down. So that in the coming ages, this is why God does this. This is, again, his motive is love. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Listen to those words. He wants to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace towards you. He wants to show you his kindness. Why? Through, how? Towards us in Christ Jesus, in him. He wants to lavish you with his kindness. His motive is love. His action is to make us alive again. He made us alive together with Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. That's how we experience the love of God, in Jesus. How does he do this? You see, Jesus takes, how does he give us life? Jesus takes all of our badness and he takes all the deadness in our hearts and then he gives us all of his life. That's all he does. It's, a, it's called the great exchange. He takes all of our sin, our suffering, our brokenness, and on the cross, he assumes the responsibility of the punishment for those things. And then on the cross, as we choose to believe in him, as we choose in faith to follow him, he gives us his life. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, our trespasses. My friends, God's character is mercy. His motive is love and his action is to make us alive again. So here's the deal. If we stopped here, I think this might be an encouraging sermon, right? But if we just left it here, that's just good news in general. But it's not good news for you and me yet. We have to go the next step. We actually have to add another point here. How does it get to us? How does this hope get to you and me in our heart? See, here's the deal. Hope is available to you through faith. It's available to you through faith. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My friends, you are made alive, you are forgiven, and you don't have to do it. You don't have to work harder, do more, be better. The work has already been done. How is this possible? How does Jesus dying on the cross 2,000 years ago equate to you and me walking in hope and redemption and new life today? Here's the deal. You have to hear, believe, and obey this message. You have to first hear that G- and acknowledge that Jesus was a real person and he did the things that he did. You have to believe 
that it's true for you. And you have to obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. So you have to hear it, believe it, and obey it. Now, I think most people in the Southern context, they have an idea or a belief in who Jesus is, right? So like, like most people, I would say, at least in the Clarksville area in the Southern context, would maybe ascribe to that Jesus was a real person and that and maybe even if you ask most people who kind of grew up going to church, they'd say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, right? But there's a difference that actually is not what makes you a Christian, Okay, and let me explain. You have to hear, believe it's true for you, and obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. So you see, you have to believe that it's true for you. And I want to use this example as a beach chair. So we're going to put the picture of a beach chair up on the screen while I'm talking about this analogy. So we'll leave this up for a minute here. Um, so, so I used to be another 140 pounds heavier than I am now. And so I'd have a beach chair and I would go to the beach and I'd sit in this tiny little beach chair, but I wouldn't really sit in it. Okay. Like I would try to sit in it, but I wouldn't flop down on it. And I want you to picture me sitting on this beach with this beach chair that's on the screen right now. Um, but my quads are burning right? Because I'm not putting my full weight in the chair, okay? I'm not putting my full weight into that chair because I don't believe it'll hold me up because guess what? I'd take that beach chair to the beach and it wouldn't hold me up. I can't tell you how many of those tiny little crappy $20 beach chairs I broke on the beaches of Ocean City, Maryland because I was just overweight, right? So I didn't have confidence that they'd hold me. So I wouldn't really sit in those chairs. So if you ask me, do I believe the chair was present? Like if we're looking at this picture right now, I'd say, yeah, it's present. I believe that the chair is there. And I can even intellectually ascribe to the fact that it would hold me up. But if I don't actually sit in the chair, then I won't believe really that it's going to hold me up. Now, my friends, this is so important to understand in light of the gospel. because we can intellectually ascribe to something that we don't actually believe. We can say, oh yeah, Jesus was a real person. And he died on the cross for me. But if we don't actually sit in the chair of his work for us, if we don't actually rest in the gospel, if we don't actually make him Lord over our life, then that, that means we're not a Christian yet. So we have to hear this message. We actually have to believe it's true for me. Not just that there's a beach chair, but the beach chair can hold me up, right? And then the action of sitting down is the action of saying, I place my faith and trust and hope in Jesus. I actually make him Lord over my life where he then controls my life. He dictates what I do. I come underneath his kingship, his lordship, his leadership. That is actually what makes you a Christian. So you can say that Jesus is a real person, but actually sitting in the chair, having that true faith is obeying by making Jesus Lord over your life. And then you can flop. And that's what God's inviting us to do with the work of Jesus. He's inviting you to rest in his character of mercy, in his motive of love and his action to bring you life. He's inviting you to receive his new life that he has already purchased for you. And this means that he doesn't remove us from suffering or trial or difficulty, but rather he gives us a hope within them to endure, grow, and change. He brings redemption and hope into our life. And then this actually produces something in us. And this is our final point, is that hope changes your life. Let me go back to Ephesians 2 verse 8 as we conclude. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My friends, this new life does not come from our works. It comes from faith. It comes from resting, hearing, believing, and then obeying the gospel by making Jesus Lord of our life. But faith then leads us to good works. It's actually God's power at work within us. Even in Colossians 1.29, Paul says, I'm struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. This means that our motivation to be obedient is actually motivated by Christ. And our energy to be obedient is motivated by Christ. It's his energy that he's working within us and that creates joy. Do you see how much rest there is in the gospel now? We even obey out of his energy. It's not about our actions. It's about God's actions for us. And the good works and a new life in obedience to him, it's actually not our responsibility. It's his. He's already laid the path out for us. We just then have to walk in this path that he's created. So we don't have to stress and strain about decisions in our life and saying, what if I make a bad decision? What if I make the wrong mistake? God already knows what decisions we're going to make and he's loved us in the midst of it. And he's inviting us to walk the path that he has already laid out for us. The pressure is off. My friends, hope changes your life to live your new life in peace, rest, and joy, not a burdensome list of do's and don'ts. That's not what he wants for you. He wants a relationship with you. He says, come with me together. So if you're watching this and you look over the course of your life and maybe you've even acknowledged that Jesus is a real person, he died on the cross for your sins, but, but you haven't fully sat in the chair yet. You actually haven't said, I'm gonna obey by making Jesus Lord over my life. I wanna come under his lordship. I wanna come, come into his kingdom and let him guide my actions. Trust him completely and trust that it's not about my obedience. If you haven't yet done that, I want to encourage you to do this today. Believe this message. Don't just intellectually ascribe to it. Believe this message. Commit your life to Jesus. Say, you are Lord. You are my Lord. You are my King. My friends, you will receive a hope and a life and a rest and a peace that you could never even have begun to imagine. And you can do this right now. He will revive your dead heart. Now, if you look over the course of your life and you have chosen to follow Jesus and you've noticed the difference, but here's the deal. We can be forgetful of this. Um, there's a, a story about the, this guy named Vince Lombardi, okay? Um, right before the National Football League came into existence, there was two different football leagues. And Vince Lombardi was in one of those, and he was a coach. And he led his team to a, a near-perfect season, but in the championship game, they lost. So they get together. These two different football teams come together as one, the National Football League. It's year one of the National Football League. And, and the players walk in. Um, they're about ready to start their very first practice after this devastating loss in a near-perfect season. And they walk into a room, and it actually has little tiny desks. You know the little desks that you had as a kid, like the little chair that you sit in that has the little like, like wooden like, like thing in front of you, the wooden, like, that you, put, you know, write on the wooden desk. So you see all these big, huge players like crammed into these little desks and, and Vince Lombardi walks in the door with a football and he stands at the front of the room and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. It's made with leather and the goal is to get it across the other opponent's end zone and we get six points when that happens or whatever. He starts explaining the game of football like they're children and have never heard it before. And everybody's looking at each other like, Vince has gone crazy, but what do you do? He went back to the basics. And that year, they won the first Super Bowl ever. And guess what? 
the, the Super Bowl trophy is named the Vince Lombardi trophy. He's one of the most amazing coaches. Why? Because he went back to the basics. And that's what we have to do time and time again. We can intellectually ascribe this truth of Jesus to be true, but we can live out of a different paradigm. We need to re-believe this message over and over and over again, not for our salvation, but for our sanctification. We need to consistently sit and rest in the gospel. Our hearts are forgetful. And this is why we gather together. So just a few maybe um, reminders and encouragements for us as a church. One, receive the truth of who you are and who God is consistently. We want to see who God is, merciful, loving, caring, reviving us, spending personal time with Jesus, being in groups, being in gatherings, all of this stuff helps remind us to receive the truth of who we are and who God is. Secondly, we want to respond to this truth, to God's life in us by by putting away those things that cast the shadow of death in your life. We can still live as if we're spiritually dead. We can still act as if we're spiritually dead. We're not acting out of our true identity. We can we cannot act in the fullness of our identity, like Derek talked about a few weeks ago, eating crackers when there's a feast waiting for us in the other room. So we need to live and respond to God's life in us by, by not living and in, in, in doing actions that cast a shadow of death in us. And finally, reproduce this mercy of God in others. This means forgiving those who harm us reaching out to those that don't have this hope yet, praying for those who we might even hate, praying for them. My friends, we are made alive. It is offered to us. Let's accept it and embrace it for the first time for your salvation and for the 10,000th time for us to become more like Jesus and sit and rest in the gospel. I want to end with 2 Thessalonians 2 to read this over us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thank you for joining this online gathering of Redeeming Hope, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.